Hello, I'm Jessica Powers. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Davis, a business and restructuring partner at James Cooper Creston and the current president of the Turnaround Management Association UK. With over 20 years in the industry and particular experience of the food, hotel and leisure sectors, there is no one more qualified and informed to discuss this week's topic, high street insolvency. Hello, Paul. Lovely to see you and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for inviting me. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying the sunshine. How's business? Business has, has quietened down, I think, over the last sort of six weeks or so. But well, yeah, it's, it's certainly been a busy start. I've been a partner now for six months at James Cooper Creston, and it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And obviously took over the presidency of the TMA from January as well. So it's, uh, it's good to have two new jobs in the space of about three weeks. And obviously, as we have seen over the last year, the pandemic has had a particularly negative impact and a significant impact on the high street. And we know, in fact, that it was struggling even before then with various efforts in vain, I think, from the government to try and revive it. But if you look at the list of retailers that we saw go into administration last year, I mean, it's endless. We've got Bon Marche, Arcadia Group, of course, Peacocks, Jaeger, Edinburgh Woollen Mill, M&Co, Benson's for Beds, Harvey's, TM Lewin, Go Outdoors, Oak Furniture Land, Le Pan Cotidian, Laura Ashley, Debenhams, Kath Kidston, I could go on. And then already in 2021, we've seen Jessup's, Hummingbird Bakery and Paper Chase also go into administration. How's it going out there on the ground? Is it as bleak as it sounds? I think it is. I mean, don't get me wrong, the high street can't be struggling. There are people out and about again, and, and the food and drink sector seems to be doing okay at the moment. But obviously, they've been landed with some pretty high bills over the last 18 months with deferred rent and, you know, VAT deferment, C-bills potentially. And these are starting to come to fruition now. So whilst the money is coming back in, the debt that they've built up in those last 18 months can be quite significant for some of those firms. That list of firms that you've just given, a lot of those were actually in trouble prior to COVID hitting. And all that's done really is accelerated the problem. We're also seeing a lot of the retail sector move to online, like Laura Ashley, albeit I think they are moving into next stores now and doing almost a joint venture on that. Certainly in the retail sector, we're seeing that change where there's going to be a lot more online-based brands, Boohoo have been buying into brands. A lot of those names will stay alive, but you might not see it on the high street if you're walking down it. I think that's a key point. Even if we put the pandemic to one side for the moment, we've had high rents, high business rates, and then obviously a loss of store-based income with things moving online. Do you think any one of those is placing a particular pressure on the solvency of high street shops, or is it really a combination of all three? I think the largest one is that loss of income, because some stores are being hit by landlords where landlords have deferred rent, but some landlords have been a lot more amenable and actually giving up that rent for some of that period and negotiating with the actual tenant. In some cases, the rent is going to be difficult, but it really depends on the landlord. Business rates, we had quite a lot of relief over that period, so it's probably not impacted yet. The challenge is going to be moving forward when all these come back. You can have full rents, we can have full business rates. The problem is that businesses that were trading okay prior to are now trading okay, but they've also got to pay back all the VAT that you've built up and it pays you earn that you've deferred. And probably more importantly, what debt they've taken on, whether it be B bills or C bills or, or whatever government support they've got. And I think that's going to be the real challenge is, is suddenly your overheads have gone up because you've got these loans to pay back. Looking at C bills and the like, your interest-free period is going to be ending in the coming months. I think the first one started to come on board around the end of March time. So those will be starting to be repaid now. But you have others that are still taking them out over the beginning of this year where they've still got another six to nine months before they're going to feel that hit. 
And so we are going to see some under pressure straight away that took it out early. B bills the government are pushing back the dates for repayment. They're pushing it over 10 years. Interest rates are low for that, but that's very much at the S of the SME sector. Whereas the C bills, I think, will have more of an impact in that middle tier. And they're not necessarily at low interest rates because they're on the interest rates given by the lender rather than government controlled ones. So I'm seeing quite a lot in the double figures per annum. Looking then at rescue options, insolvency and restructuring in particular, am I right in saying that when you're looking at the high street, generally the go-tos are administration and company voluntary arrangements? Yeah, absolutely. Company voluntary arrangements, CVAs are becoming a bit more difficult because of the changing crown preference status, which means the revenue really needs to be paid in full before you start looking at getting something agreed with your unsecured creditors. Administrations, I think we will see a lot of prepacks, particularly in those sectors where they start to trade profitably, realize they've got this big debt burden built up. Administration might be a way to lose some of that debt. Then we've obviously got some new things on board, like the moratorium, which I haven't seen used much at all. And then we've got the restructuring plan, which is a bit like a scheme of arrangement. The danger is it's just too expensive as well, again, for the SME sector, which I deal with in particular. Some of our listeners might be less familiar with the various insolvency processes. So let's go through administration CVAs first, and then we'll come on to the newer models of restructuring. Administration is available where it's likely that one of three statutory objectives can be achieved. Those are firstly, rescuing the company as a going concern. Secondly, achieving a better result for the company's creditors as a whole than would be likely if the company were simply put into liquidation. Or thirdly, realising property in order to make a distribution to secured or preferential creditors. The process can be instigated by the company, its directors and or its creditors. And the administration is overseen by aptly named an administrator who is a qualified insolvency practitioner. Compare then CBAs, which is a formal deal agreed between the company and its creditors, and it provides for a composition of the company's debts or a scheme of arrangement of its affairs. The CBA can be proposed by the directors of the company or if the company is already in a formal insolvency process by its administrator or liquidator as appropriate. The implementation of the CVA is overseen by a supervisor who, again, must be a qualified insolvency practitioner. I suspect quite a lot of our listeners will have seen the term prepack in the news. Perhaps the most notorious example recently in the high street context was the sale of Debenhams to Sports Direct. Can you just give us a really brief overview of what a prepack administration is and how it's used by high street retailers? Certainly. If we go back 15 years, show my age here, what used to happen is a company would go insolvent and be placed into administration. The administrators would then run the business for a period whilst they tried to find a buyer for the business and then they'd sell it. Now, the problem with that is there are costs of trading it and somebody has to fund them if it's going to be loss making. And it also gives a lot of uncertainty to the creditors, particularly the secured creditor of the bank in most cases, because they just don't know what you're going to get for the business. So what effectively a prepack is, is the marketing of the business and the deal is all agreed up front prior to an administration. The sale contract is ready to go. The company is placed into administration and within a minute, an hour after that, the company is then sold on. What that does is it gives certainty to the administrator that is not going to be liable for all the costs that come with it. And it gives certainty to the lenders and the creditors that they know the amount they're going to get prior to the administration happening. So that's why it happens and that's how it works. How high street retailers use it is so that they effectively get a continued trading. If the administration happens after close of business on a Monday, on the Tuesday morning, they can be reopened as the new business. The outside world would never really know anything happened. 
the liabilities are left behind with the old company and the new company buys the business and assets. The challenge for creditors a lot of the time is that it's seen as a way to lose liabilities. From an administrator's point of view, it's usually the best offer on the table and is actually the best return to creditors, the alternative being a close down of the company. And that usually means there's going to be less of a return to creditors. I think it's probably fair to say that prepacks are still controversial. The perceived element of secrecy, the speed with which this is put in place, how soon the sale happens after what has clearly been discussions going on in the background for some time before the administration. Um, we had a coalition government instigated review into them back in 2014, which I think gave rise to the prepack pool, and we could probably do a whole podcast on why that was a waste of time. We then had another review from this government, which was launched in 2017, and that was particularly focusing on sales to connected persons and this concept of fear nixing. And that report in October last year, I think the report was probably brought forward because of a lot of comments that came up during the debates on the corporate insolvency and governance bill in Parliament. And so the upshot of that most recent review is these new rules, um, snappily entitled the Administration Restrictions on Disposal, etc. to Connected Persons Regulations 2021. And they came into force at the end of April. What are your thoughts on whether those regulations are going to have any effect at all or any positive or negative impact, um, particularly for the high street? I don't think they're going to make a huge difference to people that are still looking at doing prepacks. The challenge is there's an extra cost that comes with it and there's going to be a bit of extra time from them. And then speaking from an insolvency practitioner point of view, the, you know, the administrators are qualified. They're all licensed. We're all subject to regulatory bodies. We have our three also giving out statements of insolvency practice, which are things that we have to adhere to. And SIP 16, which controls what we have to do in terms of a prepack, is very detailed and very transparent. The whole procedure has to be run through, it's filed at company's house, the administrator is an officer of the court, and I think the profession feels that there's already a lot of hoops being jumped through for a prepack, and actually is, is the new regulations going to make much difference to that? I don't think it will. I mean, we'll see in practice, won't we, whether it does or not. But I suppose the concern is if it puts a few people off doing a prepack, we're going to see more close downs, more job losses. No, I think I'm probably in the same boat as you there on my view on that. But anyway, let's move swiftly on to CVAs. We've been treated to three high street CVA challenges by landlords in the courts in the last three years, starting with the Debenham challenge a couple of years ago now, and then this year, New Look and Regis. And those challenges came about because the CVAs sought to amend the terms of the company's leases with their landlords. Obviously, in the high street context, landlords tend to be a particularly significant creditor. How can a CVA achieve more favourable terms for high street retailers? This has always been controversial with landlords in particular. A company can put any proposal it likes to its creditors, but the creditors have to agree to it. What we've seen in the retail sector, where there's a large number of stores, is that the stores are being pulled into certain pools and then treated differently. So, for example, you might have one of your really good stores that you want to keep and you might propose in your CVA proposal that you pay the back rent that might be outstanding and you pay all the rent going forward in full because you, you desperately want to keep that store. It's very profitable. On the other side of the coin, you might have a very unprofitable store that you really don't want and you're stuck on a lease for a very long time. And actually what you can do is pull that and treat it very differently. So you might give them a payoff of a set amount to almost walk away from the lease. There might be three, four, five different sets of pools where all the landlords are being treated very differently. Everybody is then voting on it. So obviously the landlord from the profitable store is voting in favour, whereas the landlord for the unprofitable store might vote against. 
but they're all pulled in together as the voting. So what can happen is all the creditors that are being treated a lot better can actually vote through a CVA. But it's something that's been going on for years. This is not a new thing. There is a way to challenge CVAs in the court. What kind of grounds have you seen CVAs challenged on? Usually it's unfair prejudice. In that description I've just given the landlord that's on the store that's not really going to get anything feels they've been unfairly treated and it's been voted through by all the ones that are going to get treated well. But so far, I've not really seen any of those being agreed by the court. The only other one is material irregularity. Generally, we don't see a huge amount of that. But if somebody's been deliberately missed off or there's something there that's been missed, even if it's by accident, but if it's material, then that we get the odd challenge like that. In respect of unfair prejudice, the courts have developed two tests. So we've got what's known as the vertical comparator and the horizontal comparator. The vertical test involves a hypothetical comparison with what the creditor's position would have been if the CVA was not approved. So generally you're comparing to, as you say, maybe a shutdown administration or liquidation. And the court would probably interfere naturally if the CVA saw a creditor receiving less than they would in that alternative. The horizontal test requires a consideration of the treatment of different creditors or classes of creditors and an assessment of any imbalance between possible prejudices to one or the other. But it's quite clearly established that differential treatment is not in and of itself enough to establish unfair prejudice. Then in terms of material irregularity, generally those challenges seem to rely on disclosure failings, not mentioning certain transactions or the nature of certain transactions. In the Regis case, the nominee was challenged uh, on the basis of what had gone into the report and the way in which the report had been prepared. Is that generally the basis of a material irregularity challenge? Yeah, but it's normally to do with something transactional that's happened that's not being declared to the creditors. The CVA proposal is all about being transparent. Creditors are voting on something that's, you know, it can have a very material impact on them and they should be aware of all the facts. I want to come back now to what you were saying about pools of creditors and the way that landlords are treated depending on how well a particular premises is performing. We saw in the Debenham CVA proposal, the Regis CVA proposal, and of course the New Look CVA proposal, that creditors had been divided into a number of different categories. In the New Look case, the landlords fell into three different categories, and some of the landlords' rights, generally for premises that were performing quite well, were barely affected, whereas others at the opposite end of the scale basically saw themselves receiving very little money, if anything. Is that then a pretty common approach where you've got companies who their largest investment is in store premises? Yeah, absolutely. And that's just been exacerbated by the COVID issue. I think we will see a lot more of that as well. I do feel for the landlords. I mean, don't get me wrong, they've had it good for a long time, but they're under a lot of pressure now. They're finding that CVAs are tying them into turnover rents or lower rents for periods and and are leaving them with stores that are just not worthwhile in their case. It'll be interesting to see how many CVAs go through. And, and unfortunately for them, the court cases where they are challenging the unfair prejudice at the moment, the landlords seem to be losing all of them. If we look at what the landlords were saying in New Look, there were challenges on various heads, jurisdictional unfair prejudice and material irregularity. They tried to run an argument that a CVA couldn't be used to affect, in essence, two or more deals on substantively different terms with different groups of creditors, or that if it could, then it's inherently prejudicial for a CVA to compromise the claims of some creditors where it's being approved on the votes of creditors who were largely unaffected by the CVA. 
the landlord's challenge was rejected on each and every ground. And I have to say, Mr Justice Saccaroli's judgment is a real tour de force, unsurprisingly lengthy, but a real good overview of the legislation applying to CVAs and how challenges are to be dealt with by the courts. I'm going to do my very best to summarise as quickly as possible his conclusions. They are important and interesting. Firstly, he held that a CVA which provides for different treatment of different subgroups of creditors is not outside of the jurisdiction of the relevant section in the Insolvency Act and is not necessarily unfairly prejudicial in itself. Secondly, it's not necessarily unfairly prejudicial that the statutory majority of 75% approval can be achieved on the votes of unimpaired creditors or those who receive substantially different treatment. But thirdly, nevertheless, that can be a highly relevant factor in determining whether there is unfair prejudice. And fourthly, in determining whether unfair prejudice exists in cases like Newlook, the following four points will be of particular relevance. Firstly, whether there is fair allocation of the assets available in the CVA between the compromised creditors and other groups of creditors. Secondly, the nature and extent of the different treatment, the justification for that treatment and its impact on the outcome of the meeting. Thirdly, the extent to which others in the same position approve the CVA. And finally, the fact that the same result might be achieved by a Part 26A restructuring, which we will come on to, does not preclude a finding of unfair prejudice. Paul, what do you think the impact of this decision is going to be for high street stores and in particular their landlords? As you say, it's looking pretty grim for landlords when it comes to challenging in the courts. Indeed, yeah. It's, it's not, not happy times for landlords. The impact on landlords is massive and I think that the outcome of that is we will see more companies trying to look at putting CVAs forward especially at the moment because I think we are going to see a lot of high street stores and companies trying to lose a lot of their lease obligations and particularly with built-up back rent which has been going on since Covid started. Landlords are really struggling they don't really have a tool to go after them at the moment at some point soon we'll probably see the winding up petition ban lifted. However, CVAs are so strong in the company's favour at the moment, the landlord has very little tool to actually go to court and say, we don't want this or we can't do this. The high street at the moment, we are going to see a lot of companies that don't need the number of stores that they currently have. And CVA is a very good tool to drop a few of those or certainly lose a lot of the costs that come with those or even move them on to turnover rent for a certain period while the high street recovers. The answer that the court seems to keep giving to unfair prejudice challenges is, well, as long as the landlord's got the right to forfeit the lease, then there is no unfair prejudice. The landlord's concern then is going to be, well, fine, if I forfeit this lease, how on earth am I going to find a tenant to replace this high street store because of the state of the high street? And that's absolutely the case, especially in the current market and, and what might be the market for some time. I mean, stores were starting to slowly disappear anyway, weren't they, because of the online presence. But it also gives that concern that they're signing people up on leases. And at the moment bad times hit, they can look at restructuring those leases onto much more favourable terms. I suppose it's going to push the landlords into being a lot more open to negotiations when companies are having trouble and they're speaking to them prior to any insolvency, which does happen quite a lot. Whereas landlords before have been able to take quite a hard stance, I think now they've got to be a lot more open to negotiations, look at restructuring those leases without the need of the insolvency process. There was at least one glimmer of hope for landlords in Mr Justice Saccaroli's judgment, and that was his comment that a permanent or long-term reduction in rent being imposed without the option to terminate would be unfairly prejudicial, particularly if achieved via the votes of unaffected creditors. 
And then also he raised the obvious point of practical guidance in that companies who are proposing a CBA will need to make sure that any rent reductions or modifications to leases are as fair to landlords as possible, because if all of their landlords exercise an option to terminate, then the company's going to be left with no premises at all. So then let's move to schemes of arrangement. What is a scheme of arrangement and how has the new Part 26A to the Companies Act introduced by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 changed things? A scheme of arrangement is very like a CBA, but it's been used solely for very large businesses looking to restructure. The big difference is that the court can impose certain parts of the arrangement on different creditors. Creditors go into different classes and court can effectively overrule a creditor class if they oppose the restructuring, if the judge thinks it's for the benefit of all creditors, which obviously a CVA can't do because it has to be voted through by all the creditors. The scheme of arrangement can also impact on the secured credit and the preferential creditors. So that's that's the big difference. But what that means is expense generally. It's court hearings, it's trips to the judge, it's lots of expert witnesses, but it is a very favourable restructuring. The Part 26A restructuring plan is an attempt at a, almost a dumbed-down version of a scheme of arrangement. As we see it as sitting in between a scheme of arrangement and a CVA, it still allows a company to look at cramming down different classes of creditors. Court can overrule creditors who decide not to go for a certain restructuring plan if they think it's in for the benefit of all the creditors. We haven't seen too many. This only came into force last year. The ones we have seen, again, aren't looking particularly favourable to landlords. It still needs a couple of trips to court and it still seems to be a very expensive procedure. Yeah, we have, I think, exclusively seen Part 26A being used by various companies in the Virgin Group, which perhaps indicates how available it is to companies of a smaller nature. Since we've mentioned the Virgin Active decision, let me just very briefly run through it since it was landmark. Obviously, the Virgin Active Group has been pretty significantly impacted by COVID and lockdown, shutting gyms and clubs. It lost £185 million worth of income in 2020 alone. And also, going back to a point you just made, Paul, it really faced difficulties negotiating favourable arrangements with its landlords. Only in the UK, I think it fared a lot better abroad. By the end of 2020, it had only one landlord who'd actually waived any rent, which obviously placed it in pretty significant difficulties. So three companies in the group put forward a restructuring plan in early 2021, and that was going to affect three classes of creditors, secured creditors, landlords, and then what's been referred to as general property creditors. So they were unsecured creditors who had property related claims, for example, under guarantees. What was proposed in essence, was that the secured creditors were not going to suffer any reduction in the amounts that were due to them, but periods of lending would be extended and interest provisions would be amended. The landlords were split into five classes relating to the financial performance of the gym premises. So landlords of profitable leases were to be treated better, for example, in having all of their rent arrears paid. As you say, Paul, it's not a cheap process. First of all, in this case, there was a convening hearing which was contested and lasted a couple of days. Judgment following that was handed down in April of this year. And following that, Mr Justice Snowden held that the threshold conditions for the plan were met. These were that the companies had encountered financial difficulties affecting their ability to carry on business. And secondly, that the plans involved the requisite element of give and take. 
After the convening hearing, there were then meetings for each class of creditors, I think which took place virtually, and only the requisite majority of secured creditors and the top class of landlords voted in favour, perhaps not surprisingly given the terms offered to those less profitable leases. The judgment on whether the plan should be sanctioned was handed down last month and Mr Justice Snowden did sanction the plan and invoked the power of cross-class cramdown, which becomes no easier to say however many times I try. That power arises in section 901G of the Companies Act 2006. Two conditions have to be met first off. The members of the dissenting class have to be no worse off under the plan than the relevant alternative. And secondly, the plan has to have been approved by 75% of those voting in any class that would receive a payment or have a genuine economic interest in the company in the event of the relative alternative. If those conditions are met, the court still retains a general discretion. So am I right, Paul, in describing this as a watershed moment? I think it is for the restructuring plan. It's the first big decision we've seen in there that's given us some direction on the way it's going to go. And again, for those larger companies with a lot of retail outlets, it's going to be a, a really good option going forward. Landlords, again, being treated differently across the board. It's very similar to a CVA in that sense. But interestingly, in this one, you know, a lot of them didn't even vote in favour, but still managed to get the cram down. The interesting bit that I thought came out of there was when the judge stated that the members of the dissenting class will be no worse off under the plan than the relevant alternative. And I think that's a watershed statement, isn't it? That actually, if you can show that there's nothing coming back if this closes down. And I suppose CVAs have always been worked off that premise, but now it's it's in writing and for everybody to see that actually, if you can show it, they're not going to get anything back anyway, then actually their views are really disregarded to a large extent. We'll see over the next few months, next sort of 12, 18 months in particular, I think, as these large businesses look at these stores and and, and the losses they've been making over the last 15 months or so cost is going to be such a barrier. I put it straightforwardly that there was a conclusion that they weren't going to be worse off. But to reach that conclusion, there was expert evidence as to what the alternatives were, and then as to whether the creditors were going to be better off. A five-day contested sanction hearing, this isn't really going to be an option for chains of, say, one, two, three stores. It's just going to be the real big players on the high street, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's just never going to be available for the SME market. They tried putting it forward without all the expert witness and the judge just came back and said, you know, we need eight more experts here. We need to know what the outcome is going to be. And actually all that does is add even more cost to what is an already expensive procedure. Whether it'll get to the cost of a scheme of arrangement, I'm not sure. But you're right, larger companies, numbers of stores are going to be in the hundreds. Finally, a bit of crystal ball gazing. You've mentioned already that as far as we know, subject to any last minute changes, the end of this month will finally see the lifting of the temporary ban on winding up petitions, which has been in place since the start of lockdown in essence last year. What are your predictions for the high street in the next 12 months? Is it all doom and gloom or is there any glimmer of a future revived high street? Uh, That's definitely crystal ball gazing. As we've discussed a lot on this, landlords are under a lot of pressure. We will see some winding up petitions going in pretty quickly. And I think it's mainly going to be companies that have buried their head in the sand and just not entered any sort of discussions. We've seen that quite a lot with the revenue, where it feels like the revenue aren't trying to push everybody into insolvency. So whereas before they may have been reasonably aggressive, I don't think they are being aggressive and I can't see them being aggressive at the moment with with the government's plans to try and save everybody. The difficulty is that if you don't speak to the revenue, then I think you'll find they are pretty aggressive what they're trying to do is agree with everybody how they're going to repay what they've built up over that period and it sort of feels like it should be the same for the landlords 
just requesting all their back rent on day one and then issuing winding up petitions if they don't seems very unrealistic. Now the landlord has some tools to actually do something. Problem is, what do they do? They get their store back. Is that what you want on the high street at the moment? I'm not convinced it is for most landlords. In terms of the high street, people look like they're spending, but I think the shift's going to be to people spending locally a lot more. Centre of London, for example, is the city and Canary Wharf. They could take years to recover back to the footfall that they had before. It's also been a good time for a lot of businesses to take the time to restructure. They might have had 95, 100% of their staff on furlough. And actually, it's given them a chance to have a look at the business, see what it actually needs to operate. And I've been talking to a hotel chain where their occupancy rate for break-even has dropped 12% to what it was pre-COVID because they've had the time to look at it and restructure it and play around with the staff a bit. The high street's definitely going to be under pressure for the next 12 months, retail in particular, because online is not going away. If you've got the right brand and you're doing the right sort of things, then you'll probably be okay. It'll be interesting to see whether the backlash against big chain stores continues and actually we see what I think a lot of people would like to see, which is high streets become much more a space for independent or SMEs rather than the charity shop, vape store, desolate deserts that we see at the moment. I think obviously retail space is going to have to decrease in size as well because we've seen the collapse of so many department stores. Yeah, what we're seeing I think is smaller stores on the high street where people can wander in and deal with local people. But I think it's going the other way online where we're going to see the big mega monoliths of businesses just getting bigger and bigger because they can afford to cover the costs of people returning good and they can do next day delivery or same day delivery in some cases. It's going to be such a massive change isn't it, from what it was even 18 months ago to what it's going to be in six months' time. Yeah, exactly. You wonder if government should be replacing Mary Porthouse with someone like you, Paul, as the, the high street <laughs> consultant. Someone with a bit of restructuring knowledge. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me, Paul. It's been super interesting and hopefully our listeners have enjoyed as much as you can enjoy the doom and gloom. Thank you very much. Thank you to our listeners as ever for tuning in. Goodbye.